This is Episode 77 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, Calling Young People, Flip-Flops and Microwaved Fish. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I'm really delighted to welcome another author to the show today. And I met Peter Yawitz because I checked his book out on NetGalley. We'll talk about the title in a minute, but it caught my eye and he was kind enough to come on the show. I'll introduce him. He's a longtime management communication consultant helping individuals and groups at global companies communicate more effectively. Now you know why I like this guy. He's also the founder of the website Advice from Someone Else's Dad, someoneelsesdad.com, which provides funny videos, an Ask Dad column, and a podcast, which gives tons of practical and humorous advice on how to manage life at work. His brand new book, and this is the one that caught my eye, Flip Flops and Microwaved Fish, Navigating the Do's and Don'ts of Workplace Culture was just reviewed as the, quote, go-to etiquette book for the new generation. And another quote, an excellent resource for anyone who is about to or knows someone who is about to enter the workforce for the first time. Peter received an undergraduate degree from Princeton University and an MBA from the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. Very high credentialed. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thank you, Jennifer. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, the title of the book caught my eye, and I think it's really reflective of the specificity of the book, which I really liked, because we've got so many general uh, advice books out there about business and communication. And so the the thing about flip-flops and microwaved fish, it was like, all right, we're going to get down to the (laughs) nitty-gritty here. And so tell me what inspired you to write it. I have been, as you said, a, a management communication consultant for many years. And one of the things I get to do is to do new hire orientations at a lot of the big banks. Hmm. And I'm usually sold as somebody who's going to talk about how to write emails effectively, understand how to work with your boss, et cetera. And I try to keep my tone very light, non-threatening, but also I want people to feel that because I'm an outsider, they can really ask me anything. And several years ago, people took that seriously, and I had a group of over 600 people at one session, and a couple of people were standing in the back, and one guy raised his hand, and he said, what do you do when your manager follows you into the restroom and continues a conversation in the adjacent stall? Do you have to talk back? And then, actually, it's interesting because I got that was a guy who asked that question. I had a woman ask the exact same question at a different session. Hmm. You know, I, th- I thought that was a reasonable question. Maybe they would hmm. feel uncomfortable asking that question to <laughs> their managers or even to the HR rep. Yeah, right. And then another one after that asked me, well, what do you do when you're talking to somebody at work and that person is like totally hot? What do you do then? 
<laughs> so, you know, of course, that brought up tons of laughter because everyone is probably feeling the same thing. Uh-huh. And it was a little bit of an icebreaker. So I realized that the, a lot of these young people are coming into the workforce not knowing just basic issues about communication. And they want to know they don't want to screw up in the beginning the mm-hmm. way we all did when we started our jobs. So everybody will screw up a little bit, but I just wanted to have this persona of, okay, you're going to be okay. You're going to fit in. And if you feel you don't, here's some strategies about how you appear to other people, what you can do to feel more confident or and to appear more confident. And that's really where the website started. And from that came the book. Okay, got it. I want to give people some idea of the topics that you cover because they are very specific from uh, people at work, communication, what to wear, um, nonverbal cues, small talk. And then you have quite a big section about writing Mm -hmm. and meetings, which I was very happy to see, (laughs) presentations, putting together a good team. And then you've got some stuff in here, too, about food and eating. That's where the microwaved fish comes from. Yeah, right. And then um, dating coworkers. You also Mm -hmm. talk about that delicate topic, traveling Mm -hmm. and... Uh, performance reviews, uh, difficult people, difficult conversations, and asking for a raise, and then also very nicely how to quit gracefully at the end. I'm overwhelmed listening to that. <laughs> Too much information. <laughs> it's you know, it's not a very long, long book, but you cover a lot of things in there, and it does say, and you've said yourself here in the introduction that it's targeted at people who are new to the workplace who probably have a little bit more anxiety about it. But I was curious if you've just discovered that other people are also using the book that you didn't anticipate. I'm not sure if I I could say use it uh, that people I didn't anticipate. I really tried to think about audiences that I've worked with and and other comments that I've gotten from people about who would benefit from reading this. Mm -hmm. So uh, one thing that was on my mind uh, as I was writing it were some of the clients that I have from overseas. I spent a lot of time in Brazil, for instance, working with Brazilians who are working for a branch of an American company. And so much uh, of the questions that they asked me were about, what do the Americans want from me? Our cultures are so different. I'm not used to the fast pace. So I really tried to reassure people, okay, that they can be whom they, who they want to be, certainly in their local culture, but understand what people in different cultures are looking for. So I kept the international people in mind too. Mm-hmm. I, I guess if I say what, what surprised me, I, I think some of the comments I've gotten have been people who've been in the workforce for a longer time and they thought, well, these things I've just kind of forgotten about, or I've forgotten about how people communicate more today with texts and Slack, for instance, and maybe I should be up to speed on that a little bit more. Mm. So I guess those comments, most of the comments are, I bought this for my 23-year-old daughter, but I kept a little bit for myself because I didn't know about this. That's been flattering to me that people, my generation, are, are interested in the topics as well. It makes me wonder if going back to basics has a lot of value, even after you've been working for a while, where things can kind of evolve. So Mm -hmm. you kind of forget just like, okay, what are the basics of writing a good performance appraisal? You Mm -hmm. know, because you've gotten pulled along in some new practices or new ideas. And sometimes we kind of lose (laughs) what we were trying to accomplish at the beginning. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, in terms of performance appraisals, uh, my view about this, and I and I think some enlightened people feel this way too, is that there should be nothing surprising in a performance appraisal or performance review. Mm-hmm. Performance review should go on throughout the year. You should be giving people accolades about what they're doing and why that's important that they did it in that way. But also, not to say you did a crummy job on this, but let me tell you why this is not the way I would hope it would be. So let's use this as a learning experience. So by the time an annual performance review comes along, you might have forgotten some of those issues that you have dealt with along the way. So I think that if you're if you are a good manager, you're constantly giving people feedback, good or bad, throughout the year and talking about how you can learn from it. So then the when the performance review comes along, it's like, oh, right, we talked about this. We talked about this. We talked about what the markers are that you want to focus on for the next year. So you know, I can't change everybody, but I think that it certainly relaxes the employees and the junior people who like feedback. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if you had kids who got those trophies mm-hmm. just for showing up, you know, at soccer. I mean, my kids were disastrous soccer players, but they come <laughs> home with their trophies, like for doing what? Sitting on the sideline? <laughs> my son would probably hate me for saying that. The only time he ever scored a goal was for the opposite team. Oh, Oh, it's so tough when that happens, especially <laughs> when they're little. They're so confused. Oh, that's but so he got tough. a trophy for it. Yeah, I agree about performance appraisals. It's kind of a bugaboo of mine, as my my poor listeners know that I can get quite carried away about performance appraisals that they're used, that they're kind of weaponized. But most most egregiously, they're simply often not done at all. Mm. And mm-hmm. that's so so hurtful to the employees and sends such a bad message. It is. And it's hurtful to people coming out of college where they're always getting feedback. And I think they thrive on that. And I think there's nothing wrong with it. Mm-mm. I think we all want a little boost or just to, so someone to say, not as I said, not you're doing a crummy job, but this is why this could have been better. Let me, let me explain what we were looking for and use it as a learning experience. Yeah, sure. No, I, I think if there's nothing, if there's just a vacuum of feedback, then I mean, of course, people are going to be anxious because mm-hmm. they just, they simply don't know. Definitely. So you talk a lot about social skills in the book, which are certainly important and probably what a lot of people think of right away, because those are the ones that, you know, they're sort of instantly uncomfortable with. But you also spend a lot of time talking about writing and grammar. And I was curious if you have found that to be an area of weakness in your experience. Well, I I think that the comments I get from leaders sometimes or managers are the people that I hire just cannot write. and. My view about writing is that you always have to think about your audience. And sometimes it's not beautiful writing that you want to strive for. It's just relaying information in the most effective way. So you don't read an email that you received and say, wow, wasn't that beautifully written? But you might say, boy, I really got all the information I needed and it was organized well. So there are two sides of writing. There's just the relaying of information. And then there's the you know, more eloquent writing that you might have done when you were in college when you're writing an essay. The problem is no one wants to read that in business. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, you know, it's a yes or a no here. I, well, I'm a, I was always a terribly obnoxious grammar nerd. And, <laughs> you know, I live by like three rules. The, the rules of the law of the land and the Constitution, you know, don't do anything against the law. I believe in the golden rule that you should behave the way you want to be treated by others. And the third one is follow grammar rules (laughs) or else there's a grammar police out there. It kind of shows in your book. 
<laughs> oh, well, thank you. I, I agonize over things and I have to watch myself. I mean, when you go to the doctor and they say, please lay down here. And I, I can't help myself to say, you mean lie down? Mm. And I'm never going to see that person again, but at least I've gotten a lesson out there that you lay a, you lay a book down on a table, but you lie yourself down. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and I think I had that the other day. And so, so I said, oh yeah, someone else said that to me. Maybe it was a year ago. And I think, well, that was probably me last year. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would have been me. That right? would have been me. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. So the book is pretty lighthearted and uh, friendly, I would say. It, it's uh, kind of funny. And you also have a YouTube channel, um, which I checked out and it had some oh. funny, funny songs on there. One of them was uh, Talk Like a Guy. Oh, wow. Which you yeah. talk about beer and the Yankees. That's right. But in the book, you, you also talk about your discomfort with people using cliches or buzzwords or jargon. Mm-hmm. In fact, you even have a song called Cliche. Cliche uh, Bingo. Cliche wow, you did bingo. a lot of research on that. Yeah. Yeah. The Cliche Bingo board came from my first job out of business school when I, it was a real male culture and I had three managers and they would say these quirky phrases over and over again. And I just got so tired at meetings. So I just would tally up how many times people would say things. And then what was, became funny was that some of the younger people started to emulate these older people by using these ridiculous phrases. And, you know, that's why I wanted to bang my head against the table thinking, you know, can't you be more original? Oh, right. You're sucking up. Oh, now I understand. Yeah, that. Right. So uh, listen, I, I think that cliches are fine. It's just that, you know, actually when I hear a cliche, I see red. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just don't, I don't mind them. I just think that you don't want your brain sucked out when you go to work and think, well, I can't say just a little bit. You have to say de minimis. And, you know, why do you have to say things like that? You can just say the normal words in English and you're fine. So that's where I get, I just laugh a little bit when people say it just because other people are saying it. I've worked for firms where there are cultural cliches. At one firm I work for, everybody's moving the needle. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, I'm moving the needle today and you're moving the needle tomorrow. We got to move the needle on this. And I, I laugh at it because if I'm working with several people and then someone's doing a presentation for me one day, they will talk about, see, well, our goal is to move the needle a little bit. And I just like, I just want to say, well, I'm so surprised to hear that. I've never heard that uh, since nine o'clock this morning. Yeah, right. I think that's, that's when I object to it is when it sounds as though people are using a phrase that they would have a difficult time putting into simple English, but it's become this shorthand and it's, it can be dangerous because what that means to you may not be the same as it means to me. But if we're communicating in these kind of sloppy terms that people don't have a good real feeling for what they mean, we really risk a poor communication and miscommunication. And just just at the expense of sounding cool, like oh. well, exactly, or where they think is professional, but also some sometimes these phrases don't necessarily translate internationally. Uh, you know, if you're having an international conversation and say, you know, "Don't boil the ocean over this," you know, someone who who speaks English not as a first language will think, "Well, that's an interesting way of looking. Why would I want to boil the ocean?" And then you just have to explain what you mean by that. Uh, so I, I just think, well, can't you just be clear? I, I mm-hmm. don't go by rules pretty much. I use guidelines, but I do have a thing that I call a one email rule where if you have to email someone back and say, sorry, I didn't get it, then you violated that one email rule. Mm-hmm. So if you say to someone on an email, we shouldn't meet with Dan today and then hit send, the email coming back is going to be, 
why or why mm-hmm. not? So you violated that eat one email rule. The same thing is if you send something internationally to say we should you know, run this up the flagpole and someone has to go back, I don't think we ever worked with a flagpole. What do you mean by that? And mm-hmm. how can one run up a flagpole? So uh, that, that would violate my one email rule mm-hmm. also. Yeah, I've studied uh, sports metaphors a lot. It's just an interest of mine. But again, I discover that people have quite different feelings about what it means to step up. Step up to the plate. Yeah, versus, you know, that that phrase has evolved, as has team player. Yeah. And so the other objection that I have, it's like two people ranting here. The other objection that I We're have. just a bunch of old people ranting. I know. I know. Those kids today. <laughs> well, it isn't kids, though, I find. No, I mean, they kids. have their own language. But I think my uh, my peer group were really guilty of doing that. And some of them, or some of my complaint is this uh uh, what do you call it? We constantly have to be more extreme than we were before. Mm-hmm. So now it's mm-hmm. not the cutting edge. Now it's the bleeding edge. Bleeding edge, yeah. And yeah. I I see this also happening in business literature where we have books coming out that tend to be more and more extreme. And I just don't think it's helpful right. to, to talk to people and put that kind of pressure on them, like, you know, rock stars and disruptors and game changers. That's you know, most, right. most of business is simply not like that. It's about right. taking care of your employees, having a good customer experience. I mean, we don't have to be a disruptor. That's the title of my next book, Flip Flops and Disruptors. I think I'm going to call it that. <laughs> You know, speaking of sports metaphors, did you know that, you know, people would say, hey, and we'll do this and this and the whole nine yards. And people would think, oh, that's football. But wait, no, football is 10 yards, not nine yards. It mm-hmm. comes from from textiles. Because I think bolts come in nine yards. I think that's where it comes from. I think I've also heard that it has something to do with sailing. That the, oh, it could be. That the sails Don't are. Don't quote me. Yeah. No, there's there's often an interesting history to those. And the history doesn't really matter that much. It does matter that we understand each other. It doesn't understand it. Well, here's another thing about cliches is I'm a big fan of being authentic at work. And when I see somebody who just says these phrases out of nowhere, it's like, well, where did that come from? It's clearly you're trying to be someone you're not. Mm-hmm. You know, when someone says, you know, you know someone's yanking our chain, like, oh, don't say that. You know, why are you saying that? You heard someone else say that. So yanking our chain, that's just like, I don't want to hear you say things like that. It's not. It's not right. Why? You know, they're just negotiating poorly with us. Can't you find something better to say? Yeah, I think that's right. Sometimes these terms are kind of hurtful, but they have yeah. this tough guy, right? I, yeah, feel to them, and maybe we need to back off from that a, a little bit. Yeah. Right, so, so along those lines, one of the things that you mentioned at least once in the book is that you counsel your readers to feel as though they don't have to be like other people at work. You don't mm-hmm. have to use these same phrases that other people do, and you don't have to worry so much about fitting in, which mm-hmm. of course brings us to the whole idea of diversity and, and yeah. the advantage of having new ideas. Mm-hmm. But, so that especially resonated, resonated with me, and I wondered if you had any particular stories or examples of... I do. I do have several stories, and you know, both from the stories where people do whatever they can to fit in because they think they're supposed to, or find out later that they're miserable for doing that because they, as I said, they've had their brain sucked out because this is not who they are. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side, where people are unhappy because 
they they really don't fit in and they don't know how to handle that. And the easiest thing is just to quit. And, you know, I, I'm saying that's okay, but if you like the actual work, maybe there's some things you can do to to be able to allow yourself to to not get sucked into, I have to be like everybody else, but I'm adding something valuable to this team because of these skills or this background that I have. And sometimes people don't think that way because they always, they often think that they're outcasts. So I've seen examples on both sides. But in terms of fitting in, I want people to feel that there is room for them. There's room for their thought. There's room for diversity of, of backgrounds and thought. And they should use that to their advantage, whether they feel they fit in or not. And, you know, sometimes there's a, a culture fit. I've, I've given this example several times uh, it, that I've had in my career where I've been asked to work for a client that's very aggressive. And I, it's, sometimes I just turn jobs down because I didn't want to be in that kind of environment. And I'm, you know, I'm more collaborative than aggressive and competitive. So, you know, I'll work with someone that I feel I can, but eh, I just think I'm not going to be happy with this. I'm not going to take that job. But if you're an employee, you might think if the cultural fit is not there, maybe there's a big structural problem and maybe it is time to leave. But if there are personal issues, you're thinking, I'm just not sure this is right. I still think there's room for you to be able to stand up for yourself and recognize the value that you bring. And I think that's a, something that I wish more people thought about. Yeah, I wish people felt more comfortable to be authentic, uh, especially at the beginning of their careers before they get right. all their creativity and individuality right. pounded out of them. The, the, <laughs> fault, the fault that don't say that. <laughs> the fault that I see often, especially at networking events where I encounter somebody for the first time, is this notion that they seem to have absorbed that in order to be professional, they have to be really bland. So don't ask any unusual questions. Don't disclose in a way in which you might be different from others. And so it's hard for me then to remember them because they're kind of all alike. Right. Well, I think I think young people are a little bit nervous about that with small talk. I, I do a whole section on small talk yes. uh, to get people to loosen up. But I think people are very worried. They don't want to talk. I mean, yeah, they shouldn't talk about politics. They shouldn't talk about religion. They shouldn't talk about anything that could offend anyone. So they, they hold back a little bit and they'll stick to the basic issues about, okay, business. And that's fine. If they're, if they're there for a networking event, they should be able to talk about business. But why can't you tell me something interesting about yourself that has nothing to do with, with business or ask a question? And you actually will find out something interesting about someone that you didn't know that it does not relate it to anything personal. No one's going to divulge anything personal that I hope in, not anyway, that, that they shouldn't divulge. But you know, I might talk to you. We just met here on the podcast. I'd love to be able to talk more to find out what your background is or what your interest is, where, you know, where are you, where are you from? What brought you to California? Uh, because I think people, there's, there's always a, a depth to somebody that makes them more interesting. And you're right. I will remember you because of that. Yeah, exactly. I think, but but right. it's hard for young people. I mean, you're not going to go, a young person's not going to go up to you and say, uh, uh, so Jennifer, how many children do you have? You know, it's like, no, well, that's, no, that's awkward. You don't want to start with something like that. Mm-hmm. But, but you can certainly say, oh, how long have you worked with this company? What brought you there? What was what were the skills that you felt were needed? And then if someone asks you that, okay, you can develop a, a rapport with someone and then you can ask the other person the same thing. And you never know what will come out. Yeah, I guess what I would say is don't be afraid 
to show a little bit of your specialness because each person does have an interesting story. And that's how we relate as, that's right. as human beings and, and remember each other. I do this whole, uh, when, when I do something at a university or, or for young employees, I'll do a whole section on small talk. I was just, do, I just, it was up at Tufts University last week and, or this week, and they had an adulting day and we were talking about you know, how do you, how do you engage someone in small talk? And I was on a very, very long proscenium stage. So I started at one end and I said, okay, I am you. And I'm also the person you're talking to. And this is where you meet me at the elevator and the other end of the stage, all the way down there is the conference room. Okay, go. So I took suggestions from the audience about what to say. Mm-hmm. And so then they said, oh, you know, what do you think of the weather? And then I would answer. I'd say, oh yeah, it's very nice weather. Yeah. Yeah. It's a nice day. Then I'd stop and I'd wait for the next question. So I kept going until then they got a little bit funny. Uh, you know, when I said, <laughs> I'm shocked. Yeah, yeah, I'm shocked. <laughs> well, they started saying things like, uh, how was your, how were your holidays? And I said, they were terrible. I had a horrible fight with my father and that kind of stunned them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so someone said, yeah, well, I had a horrible fight with my father too. And then I backed up and said, no, we're not going there. Yeah. <laughs> we're not going there. You can go back to the weather now, but, uh, you don't want to. You don't want to probe me on my relationship with my parents. Mm-hmm. Although we'll turn this podcast off, and I'll tell you a whole bunch of stories. <laughs> right, I look forward to that. <laughs> so, so speaking of awkwardness, you have this video about working with your ex. Oh yeah, uh, that's very funny. And so, any quick advice about that? I suspect that does come up, and it's a topic that we don't talk about very often. Well. If it's really going to be a very difficult situation, uh, either one of you or both of you should talk to the HR rep and say, this is going to be a very difficult situation for us uh, because of our history and find a way to work on different teams. I mean, that's, I think that would be the easiest thing. If you feel that you both have good jobs and you're working together, I would, this actually this goes back to what I said what, what before about when the guy said, what happens when you're working with someone who's totally hot? Mm-hmm. You know, we have to learn as as human beings to be able to compartmentalize a little bit and not get our emotions out of line. So, you know, we, we're, we're all human. And just because you're 23 and you find someone who's hot doesn't mean someone who's 60 is not going to find the same thing. Although I'm saying you should not go after someone who's 23 if you're 60 years old. <laughs> good. Uh, thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> it's not a good thing to do. But th- the point is, you know, we're all human. The, these, these emotions are not going to go away or these feelings are not going to go away. The point is, as you get older, you have to realize that whoever the person is, whatever the preconceived notions you have about the way someone looks or someone dresses, you have to ignore that and focus on the business at hand. So if you want to be very mature about working with an ex, you have to be able to say, all right, this is a difficult situation for us, but we can't let emotions get into it because it's not, the work is not about us. It's about the firm. You know, honestly, I have not gotten into that level with people. People really don't talk to me about their love lives or their, and I honestly, I really don't want them to. I mean, Mm -hmm. if they were, if they were some instance that they wanted to tell me about, they would, but I, I personally have never had someone confide in me that way. Oh, that's interesting. Whereas I have yeah, maybe a lot. you have maybe it's yeah. for women. I mean, I don't yeah. come in and say I'm a love coach or I'm an executive coach this way. That's going to talk about that. Usually, people talk about the obst- the business obstacles that I, that I'll deal with. But um, the only time I'll ever hear about that is hearsay from some some gossip, and it's like, oh, I can understand that, but I, it's not something that I deal with typically. Hmm, yeah, that's very interesting. So tell me about what you deal with. Because, yeah, that would certainly be the case when I was working or even now. In fact, I devote a pretty considerable amount of my first book 
about that, about love affairs at work mm. and the damage that I've seen them do. And I'm, well, I'm the anti-sex at work person, yeah. <laughs> but it does happen, which means that also it's going to happen that you're going to be working with somebody mm -hmm. that you had a more intimate relationship right. with. Right. And I find, and I think this would be true also for an attraction certainly for me, when I would first encounter somebody and find them attractive, is it kind of goes away as you mm -hmm. get to know somebody better mm -hmm. and you mm -hmm. work with them. And and then it becomes more natural just to focus on the work. Right. So, and then you start hating the person. And <laughs> <laughs> Right. Then you'd never, you'd yeah. never be attracted to what them. What was the matter with me? What would <laughs> yeah, what I was see I in thinking? that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, I would throw that out to the listeners that yep. if you're finding that awkward now, just be hopeful that that it might dissipate. Right. right. Yeah. Good point. I so should you, read your book. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. I think you would enjoy my two books. They are, um, they're kind of quirky, but, but we, you and I see a lot of things. We, yeah, we're both quirky. <laughs> yeah. Right. So you put forward this idea of being someone else's dad. Mm -hmm. And I, one of the things that I don't like about our current work life is that so many people are unhappy at work, mm -hmm. but they talk about work to their loved ones. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's a, a missed opportunity in two ways. You're spending really important quality time with someone that you care about talking about something that really they can't help you with. They just want you to be happy. Mm -hmm. Plus you're missing out on having fun with them, right? Yeah. So now you're wasting your non-work time dealing with work issues with somebody who can't really help you. Right. But I was curious about this whole someone else's dad. Like, how how did you come up with that concept, and how is that better than asking your own dad? Well, can I just go back to what you said about uh, bringing your work home with you? I think in an ideal world, I, I'll get to your question, but uh, in an ideal world, we don't bring our our work problems home. But honestly. You know, I've been I've been married for many many years for thirty three years, mm -hmm. and uh, I don't know. I think our our marriage is healthy because we do talk about everything. I mean, I would hate it for for that be the only thing we talk about, mm -hmm. but uh, because that's unfair to the other person. But I think that it's important to be somewhat involved to know what someone's be, someone's frustrated with and help someone help your partner with his or her problems. So I, I as long as it just a, it's not a one note marriage or mm -hmm. one note relationship. I mm -hmm. think uh, I think it's healthy to talk about it as long as it's not every day and it affects the mood for the rest of your relationship because you're right. I mean, you want to spend your time in doing happy things together. So I would just to add to that if there were really work issues, I would talk to a coach or a therapist or something to to have an outside voice rather than only leave it to your spouse. Anyway, that's my two cents on that. Mm -hmm. Quirky ones, right? Because that's how we are. Uh, now, back to the concept of someone else's dad. I just f find, you know, f you know, raising children and, and seeing kids roll their eyes at anything their parents said, and I would include myself as that when I was younger, that you don't want to listen to your parents for everything because your parents don't understand everything you're going through. Not that someone else's dad does, but someone else, someone else's dad doesn't have that emotional tie. I have no skin in somebody's game. Mm -hmm. That's what I say to people. 
If a young person comes to me and says, here's a word problem, I don't have to say, well, go to your, tell your boss, you know, you're really good. And, and what about that thing you did in high school? You know, I don't have that skin in the game. I'm just going to say, all right, I can be dispassionate about that. I can listen and say, based on my years of work and working with people, this is what I think would be the wise thing to do. And I, I think that that's where someone else's dad comes into play. It's funny when my, when my son will say something to me, like he said this, like one thing you told me a couple of years, dad, that I really never forgot. And you know, I nearly fell out of my chair when I heard that. Because <laughs> I thought, oh my God, he was actually listening. And then, then he told me what it was. And of course I'd forgotten that I'd even said that. And I said, oh, mm-hmm. you know, in the back of my mind, I said, oh, that's pretty good advice that I came up with, you know, at the spur of the moment, but I'm glad it helped him. Not that my son doesn't think, you know, my advice is ridiculous sometimes too, but I was just floored that he actually listened to me. Yeah, no, I mean, getting advice from your dad is certainly important, but I think that's right. It's hard. It's hard for a dad not to have pretty complicated reactions when something comes up that somebody else could deal with more dispassionately. Yeah, I mean, speaking of that, you know, the the a big problem these days is these helicopter parents who who actually want to talk to managers. Yeah. And I just think that has just gone too far. Oh, yeah, I know. You know, I I think that college advisors, career advisors know that it's part of the territory these days that that parents are really involved and they want their kids to be happy. But sometimes, you know, and I'm a victim of this too, do you want your kids to be happy for them or do you want them to be happy because they fit in some kind of mold that you want for them? And I think the, the schools are pretty good about saying, we'll take care of your kids, they will get a job. This is all the, these are all the resources we have. But beyond that, I think college is a time for everyone to explore mm-hmm. and to find what, what really does make them happy. But, you know, of course, that can put pressure on people, too, to say, if you don't find what makes you happy, you're a loser. You're, you're going to start learning what you like and what you don't like. And some people don't come, become fully formed until much later in life. So whatever job you take is not going to define you. Think of it the first job you had after college, Jennifer. I'm sure it doesn't define you. It's, mine mm-hmm. certainly doesn't define me. And but you took things from that that helped you along the way. And it could have been what well, could have been like I'm never going to do that again, or work with people like that again, or be in that environment again. And that's okay. At least you learned from it. Oh, sure. But there are also some other skills you might have developed in terms of working with people and organizational skills. Who knows what it is? But I, I think a lot of young people are unhappy because it's not all it was cut up to be. Hmm. And you know what? All right, that's fine. It's, it's okay. You don't have to stay there. You're just developing some skills and you'll find out eventually where you do fit in. Yeah, I think it's very dangerous to focus on happiness. Yeah, don't, don't try and be unhappy. Right. But, but that, yeah, that's not necessarily the goal that that you're trying to achieve, at least right. in your early years. Yes. But speaking of happiness, I was very happy that you told people in the book that they should be on time to meetings. Oh, my, my gosh. Oh, my old curmudginess here coming out. Even though, and you point out in a lot of companies, you know, there's this real start time, which is actually whatever, you know, five or mm-hmm. 10 minutes, typically late. Mm-hmm. But it's something that I observed just endlessly, this chronic tardiness and then the the meeting doesn't end on time because they really did have an hour that they needed for the agenda. And since the meeting got started late, then they quote unquote run over. Mm-hmm. And 
you have a whole section on meetings, which I was really happy to see because I think this is an area of just incredible dysfunction in yeah. our current workplaces. Right. The way we handle meetings and have meetings at the drop of a hat and meetings without agendas and <laughs> I could go I on and on. I can't tell you. I mean, that, that's something that I've seen from older people too is when I've been asked to coach somebody in a new role and we'll talk about meetings and and I'll say, well, okay, what was the purpose of this meeting? Did you have an agenda? What was the, was anybody there following up on action steps? Did anyone follow up with a memo afterwards to say what, what everybody did and what the due dates were? Did anyone talk to anyone before the meeting? So you are on a certain level before we even start. Mm -hmm. So you're not asking one, anyone to do some research or look something up in the middle. Uh, or if you're asking for some kind of action in a meeting, have you gone to people beforehand to say, this is what I'd like to achieve at the meeting. I hope you can support me and let me tell you what I would like from you. So there's a lot of pre-meeting work there to, to really run a good meeting. And then I, if you don't have any of those things in place, everyone is upset. Everybody is looking to look at their phones because this is a waste of my time. Yeah. But, and also if there's an hour meeting and you finish at 35 minutes and let people go, there's nothing wrong with that. People would oh, love no. to have that 25 minutes back. Sure. So, uh, so I'm wondering if you see any progress in this area. Like, are, do you feel as though companies are learning to run meetings better? Uh, not necessarily. No. Hmm. I mean, I don't know anybody that. I mean, I would hope the people that you and I work with will be enlightened to change the meetings. But I usually, you know, if I'm working with a mid-level group or senior level group, I'll just ask, show of hands, who uh, thinks the meetings here are inefficient? And practically everyone raises hands. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I think I mentioned the book too, and you had mentioned this to me before about some companies at least will have 50-minute meetings instead of 60-minute meetings. So you can get something done in those 10 minutes, including moving from one place to another. Mm -hmm. So it, let's just make sure we end it. It's like high school, you know, didn't you have 10 minutes between classes? <laughs> between Bell. Between yeah, between Bell's. Bell, yeah. <laughs> that wasn't such a bad idea. Give, you know, give people a chance to go to the bathroom. Now it's check their emails and get a drink of water, get a cup of coffee, and then be prepared to switch gears to, to talk in the next meeting. Yeah. I mean, my work with my clients, I feel as though it's gotten even worse. Yeah. That yeah. because so many people are working in an open plan situation now, the way you meet with people is in meetings. Right. And they and so a lot of my clients are telling me they essentially have back to back meetings all yep. day. So yep. it's just that's just horrifying. Yeah, I think it's horrifying too. Especially if it's if there's nothing going on. Why uh, anyway, I mean, I, there's, there's, every company is different, but I think meetings are important if everyone knows what the goal of the meeting is and what you have to achieve by the end of the meeting. What I say to young people, too, is that don't ever underestimate the importance of being someone who is a listener slash note taker, because that will allow people to finish a topic and move on to the next with someone that you know that you can trust who is monitoring things. So, meaning that after 15 minutes and if you talk about one topic to death and you're ready to move to the next one, it's not a bad idea for someone to say, just to make sure we're clear, I just want to make sure that I know, okay, this person's going to do this, this person's going to do this. Did I get that down right? And that helps the people who weren't listening at all for those past 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. It helps the people who were speaking to know that at least someone was doing that or maybe even clarify some of the issues that they, that they meant and they didn't say appropriately. So I think it's a very important, well, I mean, the importance of listening is critical, but to be able to demonstrate you've been listening, I think is even better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a very helpful role people can play in meetings 
I have a lot of fun talking about listening in seminars because people, when I say, what are qualities of an effective communicator? Usually people, talk, you know, eventually I get people to say that it's really all about the audience and being able to, to match what you have with what an audience needs. And that's absolutely right. And there are subcategories to that, but people forget that it's a two way street and people have to listen effectively. And then I usually ask, uh, you know, what, what do you do when you show you're listening? And everyone says, Oh, you know, look at somebody nod. And then I ask for a call of hands, uh, you know, show of hands, who has ever faked that in their life? And everybody raises their hand. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> you learn to put we that learn on. We learn to say, oh, my yeah. God. Oh, oh, really? Right. Oh, yeah. And that's, I'm totally not listening, but I know emotion-wise, oh, really? Uh-huh. And then I just have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny because you can put that in kind of autopilot while yeah. your brain your brain your brain runs off and does something else. <laughs> well, exactly, and then you can then you can fake it more by by see, by asking a question which is totally unrelated, but it's just kind of a bogus one. Like, oh, so t that, then what happened? You know, I'm not listening to anything at all, but like that sounds like it's really hard for you. Yeah, it was, and then I'm on autopilot for the next ten minutes while the person blabs on about something. All right. So just to clarify for our listeners, we're, we're not actually advising you to do that. And you can get caught. Some, yeah, well, they can get caught too, really but also, would. I don't think they need our advice to do that. I think our listeners know how to ma have mastered that already. <laughs> Probably. If they're over the age of five. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So I see a lot of questions about appearance. Yeah. And I guess I used to feel as though that wasn't as important as I wish people would, would ask about other mm -hmm. more substantive issues. But I also see some pretty extreme appearance, like mm -hmm. with tattoos and piercings. Yeah. Yeah. And so what advice do you give people about that? I can never tell anybody, totally cover up your tattoos and cover up your piercings. I just can't do that. I mean, I want to celebrate individuality. Mm -hmm. I guess the moral of it is, do you want to be known as the guy with the tattoos all over his face? Or do you want to be known as a great worker, great addition to the team who happens to have tattoos? And the same thing would be with piercings or purple hair color. Now, I'm not saying that that means, okay, go ahead and get a lot of tattoos because you should always think, let's say you have a lot of piercings. And that day, someone from a very staid organization would be a potential client and your boss wants you to make a presentation. I don't feel that I can say, take all those piercings out, but think about how you are going to be perceived and do you think that could affect positively or negatively what the client might think of you and your organization. So I can't say absolutely no tattoos, absolutely no piercings, but think about the audience that you're dealing with and think about what the perception could be. And if it's a negative perception, then you have a little bit more of an uphill struggle, I think, to be able to have people forget that you have whatever piercings or tattoos and, and recognize you as someone who's really adding value and someone you might want to work with. You know, there are some companies that say, you know, no facial hair, you know, you can't do this. I think, I think people are opening up a lot more about that. Mm -hmm. But uh, I just think from an individual perspective, you have to decide what image, what is, what is the first impression of you that, that, uh, that I see and does that make a difference? For me, it's not so much how somebody looks, it's how somebody behaves. Just because I think I'm, I'm worldly enough to know that, okay, if somebody is, listen, I mean, if I go to a, a big law firm, it's, it's honestly, I'm not going to see a lot of people with 20 piercings on their face and a <laughs> tattoo on their forehead. It's, it's usually not going to happen. But I've worked in tech firms where, People might have that. And I just, 
I just have learned to ignore that and focus on the work. But if the behavior is off-putting, that's when I immediately think, well, this is, this is not right. Mm-hmm. This person is not, doesn't have the right vibe or is not communicating effectively that this person is interested in developing a relationship. Yeah, I think that's really sound. That's really sound advice. I do talk to my clients about unconventional appearances, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that can eventually work in your favor. Like yeah. if you're the banker who dresses like a surfer, mm-hmm. but but be aware that at the beginning, uh, you're going to surprise people. That's They're right. not going to expect a banker to look like that. And so they might kind of wonder if you're really a banker. Yeah, no, that's right. But I think you're, I mean, in a case like that, in banking, it, it is a little bit different that the manager will probably say, this is a very high paying client in private wealth, let's say, and let's really dress up for them in a more conservative way, just because I think that would mean something to them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if someone said that to me, I would respect that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you know, I think why it's not? And this is where this is where the behavior comes in. If someone says, I'm sorry, I don't do that. Well, then wh- why... What are you doing here? You know that we've got different personalities and our goal together is to, let's say, bring in more clients. We have to adapt. You know, let's say we're dealing with some tech millionaire. Maybe we wouldn't do that, but just understand that we have to adapt our, our look or our feel, but certainly not our behavior for people. We want to be professional. Yeah, it's an, under, it's an appreciation of your audience. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so we we uh, are touching on this topic about generational differences, so we may as well go there. <laughs> and I was at an event last night where there were a lot of uh, my former colleagues, a lot of CFOs were in the room, and sure enough, people started bashing on millennials. Yeah. Personally, that has not been my experience. I don't find millennials to be particularly different than other people that I worked with, but you see a lot more in your work. And so I was curious as to what you're seeing. I do, but but like you, I hear a lot from my friend's generation where they like to bash millennials. And listen, you can, you can be upset with someone. I'm sure people from the previous generation to us, uh, they were upset f- with us, I don't know what they could have been upset with because we are so perfect. No, right. But, yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine what that would have been. Yeah, money grubbing. Yeah, I know, I know. BMW driving. Reagan voting. <laughs> Speak for yourself. But, uh, <laughs> That's not me, but <laughs> that was the stereotype. Oh, the stereotype, yeah, okay. I was at, you know, I was actually at a party with a dinner party at New Year's with, with friends of mine who were saying, oh, this person, and I try to get a word edge in edgewise, but they were really insistent on, on, I don't say bashing, but talking about their frustrations. And I let them mm-hmm. do that. But, uh, you know, if I had them one on, I'd want to spoil the moment and say, listen, you people, that's a nice way to begin the year. <laughs> yeah, right. I, uh, so I, uh, I guess my view about that is there has to be some kind of adaptation and, when I work with young CEOs, like entrepreneur types, on my podcast, I, I have a section where I interview, you know, way exciting young CEOs who are under 40. And I, I don't, I mean, part of it is I want to know what their background is, but also I want to know how, what it's like to manage a company at your age. How have you set up a culture? And what is so interesting to me is they have thought about it. Pretty much everyone that I have interviewed has thought about the culture they want to have because that's how they want to work too, oh, which good. could mean anything from, you know, dressing casually if, if you can, you know, that's perfectly fine. But also 
to, to think about how we want to work together. And I think the common theme about all the, the, those companies run by younger people is we have a common goal together to, to achieve whatever success means for that company. So whatever role you're in the company, you're all part of that big picture. So you should be proud of that and let's work together to achieve it no matter what. So I think some of the older, bigger companies, and not saying that people haven't changed because they have, I think because people get so busy and have done things in a certain way, they tend to forget to include the younger people in what's going on. Mm. So they might assign a task and the task just could be a menial task. All right, I would feel more excited about doing a menial task if I knew what the purpose of that was in the big picture. So we are working to something together. I think younger people today want to feel that they are part of something, that they're achieving something. And even if it's a menial task, okay, some stuff has to get done for the common good. So that's what I see more than anything else. And my advice to my friends, for instance, at the New Year's party was, all right, well, how can you, you adapt a little bit to say, if they have this little bit of an attitude, what is it that they really want? What is it they really want? Do they want fewer hours or do they want to feel part of something or do they, do they want to be part of a, a bigger conversation and listen to them and try to adapt a little bit because then you're going to have a better working environment. Yeah, I agree. I'm nodding my head here vigorously, even though you can't see me because. But I visualize you. Good, good. Because we talked about this when we first met, you know, a lot of our workplaces are unhappy Mm-hmm. And that's something that I lay at the feet of my my generation, if you want to call us that, or my peer group. We made workplaces that people were unhappy in. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, ah. this, ah. Is a, this is an opportunity for somebody else to come along and say, well, let's not do it like you yeah. did it. Yeah, yeah. I like one that. Of, one of the CFOs last night said to me, she said, in the big accounting firms, the new people coming in are changing the culture. Because yes. they, they are not working the way old managers used to in their relationships with their partners. Mm-hmm. And so that whole dynamic of you having to work you know crazy hours and do all the grunt work while the partner, once they made partner, gets to waltz off to the golf course, mm-hmm. that's, that's not how it's being played right. out now. And maybe right. that's a good thing, you know? Yep. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting you said that some people are miserable. I, I guess one of our friends was saying that uh, their, I, I guess I, for, I forgot who it was. I think it was their son came back for Thanksgiving and met with all the friends from college or high school and everyone was you know, complaining about their job already. Mm. And, and I think some of them were, had jobs in big tech where it's like, wow, I'm getting a job at you know, you name it, one of the big name brands. And because it sounds so cool, even to us, like, wow, you're working at I don't want to name a name because I don't want to like, but you know what I'm talking about. Oh, I'll say Google. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's just say Google. (laughs) I'll go right there. (laughs) All right. Uh, I'm working this cool job at Google and maybe they're not, you're just not happy with it. Mm So I, and I'm not, I mean, this is really not a a comment about Google at all, but it's still because, you know, it's become a, a large corporation and you become anonymous and maybe you feel, well, this is not what I was hoping for. Maybe I really wanted to be part, feel, feel I'm part of something rather than just a cog. Uh, but the other thing that I've, that I've thought about too is that I'm glad when you said that the big four accounting firms have adapted, but 
in the in the investment banking world, even though they've adapted to, and I don't want to say negative things, it is just there's still a lot of the grunt work that people do for the sake of doing grunt work. Meaning, yeah. you know, once I've become a VP when I used to be an associate or an analyst, now I can dump all this stuff down on my underlings. Like, get this analysis done. We need it by tomorrow morning because it's really important. And they'll spend all night doing it because that's the culture. And then the next morning, they'll hand it in and then no one will look at it for 10 days. So I just think that that was something that, you know, if I were that age, I would totally resent. Yeah. Uh, at least let me know that the client is going to be in the, in the next morning. So we're in this together. But rather than just to, because it's like a rite of passage for me to work overnight to do something, that's just, who wants to do that? Mm-hmm. Of course, I was always kind of a renegade questioning everything. Um, which is why I didn't last long in corporate America, because I, I just said, you know, I don't aspire to be my bosses. I just don't, I don't know, the money wasn't worth it to me. I, d- I knew I'd be unhappy. Yeah, it really depends on what motivates you. And it yeah. takes a while, I think, to to figure that out. Right. That's right. Oh, it definitely takes a long time. I mean, I had no idea that what I ended up doing for a living was even a job. I didn't even yeah. think about it. It just mm-hmm. happened. Mm-hmm. And I, I fell into it, but I'm glad in a way, even though I was miserable for some of it, that I had some really good skills that I developed along the way uh, that, you know, it's hard to recognize when you're living through it, but there's always something you're picking up. As, you know, actually, when I was talking to one of these young CEOs in nonprofits, I know there are a lot of people that I've talked to from college who want to go into some admirable, you know, nonprofit world. And what this guy said was, don't ignore those jobs in consulting or banking or manufacturing that you could get right out of college because the skills that you have there are really going to help you eventually if you want to go into not-for-profit management because a lot of people are not trained in regular business skills. And one thing he really said was, I'm just, this is back to your, one of your earlier questions, a lot of the young people just can't write. Mm. And you know that's where they need people like us, Jennifer, to, to whip them into shape so they can do whatever they want. Or make people be aware that there are skills that you're going to need if you're going to launch yourself out to do something. Absolutely right. That's a really good point. It's one of the things I worry about with people, very young people, inexperienced people dreaming of starting their own company because being an old fogey, I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that you're going to need to know before you do that. Otherwise, it's really going to be hard. And oh, that's right. Totally I wish, right. Wish people would just slow down a little bit. You know, yeah. just just take a few years and work in a more traditional environment, so that when you do go out on your own, you're more set up for success. Hmm. Hmm. No, I agree with you. You know, it's it's also that's difficult for our generation a little bit, as also as parents. To be, I think maybe it's because of where how we were raised. Our generation, I'm talking about the baby boomers, which is where I, where I certainly fit. Mm-hmm. It was not considered wise to take time off because of the previous generation, you know, my parents would just think, "Oh, that's crazy. This is the path you're on. How could you jump off it for me? You, you have to be financially independent, and you need a job." And now when I was at Tufts the other day, the first person I, I talked to was someone who was helped a student who was sponsoring this adulting day. And mm-hmm. I asked her what she was doing after college. And she said, I just need to, I want to explore a little bit and get different types of jobs before I decide where I want to go. And 
Of course, I'm not her parent. So I said, great. Yeah, sounds great to me. <laughs> sure, take a few years. <laughs> I think three years, four years. Actually, the first thing I said is, that sounds great as long as you can be financially independent and make sure you have health insurance. That's that's uh, that's the dad comment. Yeah, that was it. That was a dad and, and comment. And wear sunscreen, yeah. <laughs> Which you mentioned in your book. Yeah. So at the very end of your book, you have this lovely uh, advice for people about encouraging them to think about how they want other people to remember them. Mm -hmm. And can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah. um, I I think it's hard for a young person to think that way. I remember, you know, when I was in, well, when I was in college, I remember thinking, how do I want people to think of me now as like really smart, Actually, no, I can't even remember the yeah, other really? one. You know, it was like really smart, <laughs> really sure nice, or this is college thing, or nice looking or something like that. You know, and I figure, okay, nice looking is not going to happen. So it's going to be, oh. so I want people to think I'm really smart or really nice. Uh, you know, when I went to an Ivy League school where everyone was really smart, I, want, I would hope people would think that. But I just, the thing about being very nice, I wanted a reputation. And I think this, I, I, I didn't force it, where people would consider me somebody who was honorable and authentic and would be definitely interested in others. And I remember thinking that a long time ago, and then I probably forgot about it. But I think it's something for people to think about. How do you want to, you know, it's your eulogy. God, it sounds so, of course, that is morbid. But where do you want, when you, even when you leave a job? Yeah. I would like someone to say about me, boy, he really helped us and he was really a decent human being. And wouldn't you, wouldn't you like to say that about everybody? What, what do you get from being nasty? I, I haven't actually, it's the, uh, medium.com is excerpting a, a portion of my book next week. Hmm. And they want to do this section about how to quit gracefully. Yeah. And so I, they took part of it, but I added a little bit more about an example about somebody who was leaving a job who was so frustrated and wanted to just go into somebody's office and yell, I hate you, I hate you, this is terrible, like, and goodbye and good luck for the rest of your life, and I don't care if I ever see you again, slam the door. And I think, I don't think there's one person who's ever, never felt that before. Yeah. Uh, but let's say turning that into an email and then ready to hit send. And my comment is, what do you get from that? Yeah, the momentary satisfaction. What do you, yeah, but, what do you get but, from the momentary satisfaction? But where where does it leave you? What the only thing can be negative. So I'm a big fan of the word when I said how to how to leave gracefully. I think grace is something that is sorely missing in a certain part of the population of this country. Uh, <laughs> And you can interpret that in any way you want to interpret. But I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks. I will. <laughs> no, but I think grace really is a wonderful word, and being gracious, and I think those those attributes really do belong in a workplace. Well, they should belong they, in life. What do you get by not being graceful? And here, it does not mean people don't think that's passive. Don't think that is not a, trying to be successful at work. I think that grace means a lot. And it has nothing to do with religion. It just means being showing respect for other people. Mm-hmm. And when it's like when people say, well, I don't want to be aggressive, and I certainly don't want to be passive. So where should I be on that spectrum? And my feeling is throw out that spectrum. You know, yeah. Don't label yourself there. Always say that in business, you want to be direct about what you want, but be polite about how you're doing it. So there's nothing that's negative about that. You should never beat around the bush. I should, again, like back to the one email rule. What do you really want? Just tell me what you want. 
mm-hmm. and tell me why and say it in a nice way, but also but thinking about me and how I need that information. Mm-hmm. So to me, that that all falls under the big category of grace. Well, that's that's a lovely way to finish. And I want to thank you for your book, which I think will help a lot of people and the work that you do to make us get along better. And I wondered if you wanted to tell the listeners how they can follow your work or find your book or anything else you'd like to share with them. Oh, well, that's very sweet. Well, to find the book, the easiest way is just to go to amazon.com and and find flip-flops and microwave fish, or you can Google, or you can just search for my name, Peter Yawitz. That's very nice. Uh, But also I have a website. I have have so many websites. I I had a business website. My business is called Clear Communication. So the business is clearcommunication.net. And then of course, there's the someone else's dad.com, but I put them all together under, I mean, so you can go to any one of those and find things, but I also have one just called peteryawitz.com, which links to everything. Hmm. And so you can find links to the book. You can find l- links to the someone else's dad page and the podcast. You can find information about me as a consultant. And, you know, I hope if people do follow and find follow, oh gosh, this is the, like the horrible thing for people our age is, is social media. I am trying my best to be a an Instagram citizen only for work. I really my problem with Instagram is that I don't I have no reason for anyone to care what I had for dinner last night and see a picture of it. But if you want <laughs> but I so I'll sh- I'll show some funny little things or memes or whatever they're called about my book. So they can follow me on Instagram at someone else's dad. And then I have two Twitter accounts at, at Peter Yawitz and at someone else's dad. Either one has uh, pretty much the same same stuff. But so I would, I'd love young people to follow me on that. And also, if you have a question at the Someone Else's Dad website, there are plenty of places that you can email me completely anonymously and discreetly for any questions you have about work. And you can also subscribe to my uh, Ask Dad commentary, which comes out at least once a month. Nice. Oh, that's very nice. Well, Peter, thank you very much for being on the show. Well, thank you, Jennifer. It's been my pleasure. That's it, everybody. You've made it through another episode of Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work. In keeping with the new year, we'll be changing our format somewhat as the show has evolved. We'll continue to address work-related problems, but in our second year, we'll be going beyond just an advice show to talk about work trends, labor laws, economics, interesting companies, as well as pranks, bad bosses, and more screw-ups at work. If you have a question about a work-related issue or a comment about the show, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us through the website discreetguide.com. That's D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T. And at that website, you can also sign up for The Pergola, a digital publication that comes out every other month, and get information about training programs, books, consulting sessions, articles, jokes, and resources, all for us to work better together. Thank you for joining my quest to improve our workplaces. And thanks for listening. New shows will be available every Tuesday and sometimes Friday. Tune in so you can hear more about trouble at work.